Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman, and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff. Brent Potts is celebrating his 55th year as a stockbroker. He is still going strong. Every day, immaculately dressed in suit, tie, and crisp business shirt with initials embroidered, Potts arrives at his desk at Aurora Place, Sydney, ready to talk to the smartest investors in the country. He never misses going to lunch with a client or colleague and enjoys chatting all things market to those who pass by his table. Undefeated by COVID, he organised with a local Japanese restaurant to deliver food, typically oysters, to his workplace at Blue Ocean Equities, inviting all the staff to join him for lunch. Potts, always affable, is an institution that seemingly has many trading sessions ahead of him. Over the years, he has brokered to the who's who of the Australian business community, including Kerry Packer, Solomon Liu and John Spalvins. He has bought and sold massive lines of stock that other brokers would only have dreamt of. His sage investment advice has travelled far and wide, and he counts famous singer and actress Barbara Streisand among his best clients. Potts has seen just about everything in the Australian market, from the Poseidon boom, the Whitlam dismissal, the 87 crash, the global financial crisis, and of course, COVID. Through the 1980s, his business partner was flamboyant Rene Rifkin, but since then, he's built several broking businesses of his own. Each time he sells, he starts again, constructing another successful operation. Not only does Potts offer advice, he's also an ardent investor. He typically backs his ideas with his own money, happy to take risks and go along for the ride. This has served him and his clients well over the years. It has also allowed Potts to fund many philanthropic causes, always willing to put his hand in his pocket to support a range of issues from underprivileged children to the homeless. Welcome, Brent, and congratulations on a magnificent career. Let's hope it continues. Thank you for that nice introduction. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's a privilege to have you here. Lovely to talk. Let's get it out of the way, otherwise my wife will kill me. How does a Sydney stockbroker become attached to Barbara Streisand? Well, it's a long story, so I'll try and keep it as short as possible, but I've been going with my family for the last uh, 30 or 40 years to Hawaii for Christmas. I met her now husband, uh, James Brolin there. He then came to Sydney and I met him, took him to a few of the restaurants in Sydney. When he went back to America, he invited me to have a dinner with him and his wife, who is Barbara Streisand. As a result, she said, well, now that I know you're a stockbroker, can I invest with you? So she kept successfully, we kept we were successful in the first lot of money she sent and then the second lot. So she kept it increasing it to the size where it was quite significant. And how long has that been now? It only changed after the uh, the GFC because the American rules on tax, etc., made it very difficult for investors to have discretionary accounts run outside the country. They had to be run inside the country. The tax department or the revenue department there was very difficult. So I haven't been doing it for her now since about 2016 or 2017, but um, I go and see her regularly. And you enjoy that? Yes. Yeah, she's a lovely lady. Uh, terrific. Well, we'll get back to some of the names yes. because there's a lot of interesting stories in that and we'll deal with that a bit later. But I thought we might go way back and try and work out where you got interested in the share market, given it's become your whole life. I understand that your grandfather was influential in that respect and he he was an investor himself. Yes, he, he was a pretty avid investor. Um, I think the first page he opened the newspaper every day was to look at the quotes. Um, <laughs> so um, I got involved um, with him by him taking me to the stock exchange. And uh, as a young fellow standing in the, the gallery looking down there, I thought to myself, this looks like an exciting place to be. I chose to go into that, the- That was the stock exchange that, floor. The stock exchange floor, yes. And a lot of activity. And the, you know, stand in the visitor's gallery and watch all these people screaming. I decided it was a, it looked like a football scrum. <laughs> and I, So I, I enjoyed like I could, liked what I could see there. And I thought this has got to be the place for me. So I spent the rest of my time then educating myself to go to uh, to the floor. Just what you saw was the excitement, not the fact that people were 
making and losing money at the same time. Well, you don't think of that when you're that when you're young. Okay, there was the I suppose just the excitement of what was trading on the floor. I mean, it was hectic watching the people down there, and you often wondered, well, what is it doing? So, it was a fascination to go off and learn what they were doing down there. And what type of investor was your grandfather? And did he talk to you much about it? Uh, yeah, a fair bit, yes. Um, but he was, um, you know, a, a very conservative investor. You know, he would buy dividend yield stocks only. I mean, he would have been horrified at the tech boom that we've just gone through and the tech crash as well. And he didn't buy mining stocks either. He just stuck to the good old industrials. Get rich slowly. Slowly. Yes. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you, you went to school. You lived on the North Shore. Yes. You went to school. How, how did you get into the share market? How did that Evolve. Eventually, after the education, I um, applied. I went to the stock exchange. They were asking um, for, looking for employees to be one was called a chalky. The chalkies we used to be up on a platform that would write up the quotes on the uh, on the boards that were yelled at them by the operators, which is what I was looking at when I was looking down on the floor. The, the operators shouting at the board boys, and the only way in was to go and be a board boy. And the advantage of doing that was that most people don't realise, but on the trading floor there would be up to two hundred people, so you had to be able to identify with your back to them two hundred different voices. And after, it takes a long time to, but after you got used to the 200 voices, you didn't have to look around. You knew where the, when they were yelling out to buy at a certain price, you could write up their number and you'd write up the stock. You'd write up their operator's number and you'd write up the price they were bidding. From that role, obviously, with the if you had the ability to be able to do that, you became you had the opportunity to become an operator because the member firms were always looking at somebody that was skilled in identifying the voices, knowing who who's yelling out to buy and sell. At that point, you're working for the stock exchange, for the stock exchange, not for a broking not house, bro- no. And that would have been the Sydney Stock Exchange in those yes, days, yes, because every every stock exchange was was state in, based, in, yes. They merged in um, about 1988, became the Australian Securities Exchange. So how did that work in those days for all of us who just know the ASX these days? If BHP is trading in Melbourne and Sydney, were there different prices? Sometimes there were, and um, people would take advantage of that. People would have an agent in Melbourne, and uh, you'd have a girl on the phone in Melbourne and a girl on the phone in in Sydney. If they saw a price differential between BHP in Melbourne and Sydney, you'd run out and buy 5,000 shares here, and you'd sell the 5,000 shares in Melbourne. just arbitrage the difference. So there was that opportunity. It sounds like the old horse racing days. It was. <laughs> There's not, that doesn't exist anymore. No, 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 no. It's all on screen now. You were working with the exchange, and that was in the late sixties. Late sixties, yes. And at that point, was the was that the Poseidon boom? Were uh, you experiencing yes. that yeah. while you're working at the exchange? No, I experienced that mainly when I was went, went to work for Peter Haynes, which is your first broking job. Y- yes, and Peter Haynes was a private client broking firm. He was a lovely fellow, very intelligent guy. And uh, he chose me down off the, took me from the uh, being a chalky to offering me a job as an operator, which was what the ambition of what everybody wants to do. Everybody in those days, the operator on the floor was like the kingpin as opposed to the advisors upstairs. Later, that course changed, and now on the screens, it's all about advisors. So the operator was he was he or she the one yelling out to the chalky? Yes, right. Yes. And so, how did that go? Did you need a big physical presence on the floor? How, how did you become someone that people heard their voices and became just a dominant you, figure on that floor? You just got to yell louder than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Peter, he was running his own brokerage house, but yes. for private clients, private clients and institutions. Right. So, when you went went to work for him, were you his only operator? Or was there several? No, or? there were three. Most firms had two to three operators. And did you know straight away that you? had a knack for it? 
Um, well, you, or you, you, it take it, a it's while? a learning process, but you've learned so much by hearing the voices when you're on the boards, when you're running as a chalky. You've learned so much in, in, her, in understanding those voices. It was not difficult on the floor. I mean, you're just changing. Instead of being yelled at, you're doing the yelling. So you would be, you'd have a couple of phones near you and orders would be rung through. Yes. And you would deliver it to the chalky on the board. No, you, you call your bid out to the, uh, the board and it goes up. If somebody offers to sell to you at that price, well, then you're negotiating with it or you're buying from that, from the seller, selling the, the opposition. Right. And w- was there a big pay increase from when you went to a chalky toured operator? Absolutely, or? yes. <laughs> so that was always the ambition. In those days, the operators were probably the most highly paid. They're not anymore, but they're most highly paid in the, uh, in the, on the floor. And a bit of colour about Peter. He, he was someone who had set up his own business. Yes. He was a brief birth uh, when being born. He lost the use of his of legs and, uh, and one arm. He could only use his left arm. Um, but he refused to use a, um, a wheelchair he'd, and he'd have a, a cane. He got himself onto the board of the stock exchange. And when he would go to the, the meetings, when you had to cross Bly Street in those days, which was a two-way street, you could never get across fast enough without him on his movement. So always one of us would go down to, to have to carry him across the streets. Wow. A great effort to run your own business. Yeah, he's a lovely fellow, though. And so the Poseidon boom was on in the late 60s into yes. the early 70s. A little bit of colour around that. How does it rate against other booms that we've been through? Well, look, it was. you can't say it wasn't exciting, but, you know, I don't think people really quite realise this. It's a bit like we've just gone through the tech boom. That people didn't realise it was what they have what they call neurology. Neurology means if you're near somebody that's just struck gold, then you, <laughs> then your, your shares went up as well. So it was more rumour-driven than anything. And Poseidon itself, as we saw, you know, it went to $280-odd and back to nothing. There was a one called Tasman X, which was the sort of the sister to it, and it went from something like $0.10 cents to $80 or $90 as well, and, and then it collapsed. Most of those were all based on just the fact that um, one drill result. Today, it, the market's much more sophisticated, and uh, there is, when results come out now, you've got people who are really qualified to, overlook, to look over and analyse that to the extent that um, you don't get these wild, wild swings. And what, what did that teach you about booms and busts? Because your first experience in, the, in that environment, I gather. Well, I suppose it teaches you to be um, to always take, be happy to take a profit. <laughs> uh, I mean, a, a lot of people buy things, watch them go to two hundred eighty dollars, and they write it all the way back into the back to zero again. So, if anything, it taught me that if you buy speculative stocks, my my philosophy is: if I buy it when it's doubled, I will take sell half my stock, so I've got the rest riding for nothing. Yeah, that's a good philosophy. I, w- I wish as a fund manager it was <laughs> like that, but I think for retail investors, yes, that, that's that's a prudent way to go. And were you surprised at how low the stocks went post the boom? Oh, absolutely. Because they melt in the sun, don't they? Yes. And what people didn't realise in the stock market then, and particularly when the Whitlam area came along, the volumes in the market were almost non-existent. You would be surprised how small the daily turnover was in the stock market for the entire stock market. Well, I remember talking to another veteran of the market, John Bowie Wilson, who who you probably know quite well. And John said, well, we used to come in and make our two or three calls in 1973 and four. And then we played backgammon for the rest of the day. It's about true. It's about true. <laughs> so was that was that a very difficult period? And did you stay with Peter at that stage, or did you move on and start your own business? When, I, did, when did that happen? Um, I moved on with to um, with Rifkin and Company, but then I went from uh, being an operator to going to be an, an advisor. And, and, and to, what was the difference there? Well, then you just went upstairs, and you, I, that was when. Um, 
institutions were just coming to the forefront as, as a players in the market where superannuation, which hadn't been really created until, well, when Keating came along and, and gave it a boost, but there were a number of the funds around, like the AMP, uh, AMPs of the day. So as an advisor, you... So you left the floor in the in the 80s? I left the floor. Because no, the floor didn't no, close the, down no, until 87, the, No, I left the floor in about 1974, 75. Oh, that early? Yeah. And and then you, you, you went upstairs into an office yes. and broking as we would know it today, you'd be working the phone, talking to your clients. Exactly. When you're an advisor, is that when you start to get to know your clients a lot better? Uh, much better, yes. Well, some of the, sometimes as an operator, you were dealing with uh, clients as well because they wanted a direct phone to the uh, to the floor so they could act, connect. And in those days, just before the end of the Poseidon boom, the, you might remember there was a big company around called Min- Mineral Securities run by uh, Ken McMahon. That was probably one of the biggest trading companies um, on the day. And so if you could get him as a client, and they dealt with a number of brokers, but they they liked the, they didn't want to go to the advisor. They wanted to go straight to the trading floor. They w- wanted to talk to the operator. Right. They knew there. what they wanted to, yes, yes. wanted to do. They didn't want any advice. No. <laughs> and, and before we leave the 70s, so that was a very difficult period, especially that period around 72, maybe through to 76, 77, and the Whitlam dismissal and a lot of turmoil and the American market was in the doldrums as well. Did did you ever think I picked the wrong industry, that this is this is very difficult to make money and to prosper? No. I mean, look, fortunately, we always made money. It just got a little less when it got tougher <laughs> and when it gets better, I get, when it's good, it's very, it's very, very good. It's one of those industries that goes through wild swings in terms of uh, profitability, but there was no chance of me overleaving it. I loved it too much. I presume from that, a bit like your stock selection and what you do about when, when stocks double and you, you sell half and put it in your yeah. pocket and you're okay. Is that a bit the same with broking, that you do go in cycles and that you've got to be ready, always put enough aside to be ready for those down periods? Yes, it's very much the same. In those days, everything was done by hand. You know, There, were, we, there weren't the computers in those days that are around now. So you had big printing machines that printed your contract note yourself. You printed your own etc. in the in the office, etc. You printed your own script cards. So nowadays it's all done by computer. That's right. And so as we moved out of the seventies into the eighties, which became a boom period, it's yes. every decade's a bit different, isn't it? And and you were at Rivkin. You obviously by then were an established broker, advisor, yes. and you got to know a lot of interesting people. And that eighties period was a real boom in Australia. If I go through some of the names, you might be able to give us some stories that people can relate to. Well, most of those were after I had left and I went to inform Potts West Trumbull. Okay. Which was your next iteration yes. as a broker. So maybe talk a bit about Potts West Trumbull. There was yourself, the Potts. Yes. And then there was Willie West. In, in London, yes. And Chris Trumbull, who was probably, if, if not, I, I would say the finest mining analyst I've ever come across. He was very good. Very good. In London. Why did you need someone in London? We had London office and uh, we had four or five advisors over there. And London was a big, remember, you would understand where, London, where the UK was. The UK has no minerals or anything at all. So their only way of investing was to go offshore. And so Australia was an, obviously the best place uh, in ter- terms of a, a stable political climate, um, very strict rules on you know what you can and cannot do. And not like Canada, which was a bit more like a, a bush rangers club. Australia was preferred over Canada. By far, yes. The regulations here were, were much tougher in terms of what mining companies could say. Very good. And so Willie was over there. Yes. So that was the perfect setup. You yes. had a good resources analyst and obviously you're an all-rounder talking to the clients. Yes. So Potts West Trumbull covered most bases in the Australian market at that yes. time. Yes, but we were all institutional. When we did, have, you have private clients to, to a certain extent that are, that are either high net worth private clients or friends uh, as well. But uh, 90%, 99% of our business was institutional. 
And that period, after, especially after the Hawke government came in, the, the drought broke, we won the America's Cup, and the market was off to the races right through to 1987, as we know. Yes. And there was a lot of interesting characters in that. There was the Alan Bonds and and there was Chris Scases, and but a, a couple that maybe you have a bit of colour on that might be worth talking about. There was John Spalvins from Adelaide Steamship, who mightn't be as well known as some of those other names right. because he didn't end in the same inglorious way as some of them. But John was a big player in the market and you had a close relationship with him? Very close and, and still do have, by the way. I see him two or three times a year and have dinner with him and he's still going strong. At, I think he's about 85 years of age now and he's still going strong, still as a, as a student, as bright as ever. I mean, his was a case where the uh, recession that sort of came or that recession we had to have forced those interest rates in those days when we've just lived through a whole period here of 0.1s and 0.2s of interest rates. People don't realise that mortgage rates got to 17, 17 18% for a house mortgage, which was ridiculous level. Where John, had, had what he had done before the interest rate hike came, he bought himself, or not himself, he bought for Adelaide Steamship, 15% of National Bank, which you had to get the special permission to go above 10, and he got that from the Treasury. He had 15% of National Bank, he had 8% of Westpac, and he had uh, 10% of ANZ Bank. Now, all of those um, were paying dividends, a, fr a franked dividend, and before the interest rate rise, the cost of money was cheaper than the yield he was getting. So he, he'd washed, washed its face to hold the shares. They called that a free carry. It was a free carry, yes. He pioneered that in Australia. Yes, but unfortunately when interest rates go to 17%, uh, it's a negative spread. Yeah, the dividends don't follow. Yeah. Now, if you, if you looked at those three companies alone, just those, particularly um, National Bank, Westpac and uh, ANZ, if you had the, still had those holdings today, those combined holdings would be worth about 30 or 40 billion okay, uh, today because he would have had 15% of National Bank, as I said. But he also then went off and bought himself about, or when I say bought himself, bought for the company again, about uh, 7 8% of BHP. Were you participating in all those purchases? Just about every one of them, yes, which, right. which was a lovely position to be in. What we also had is we had an options trading desk, and exchange-traded options were a new thing to the market. They only were introduced in about 1984, 84, 85. What you were able to do is not only could you buy the shares, but then you could write options against them, which gave you an additional income, which assisted you in not only in profitability, but in the carrying cost as well. Got it. So that was very clever, especially at the time. If I think about it today, BHP with the market, a cap of $250 billion, yeah. if you buy 7 or 8%, that would have been a $15 billion order for one broker. Yes. Well, well it wasn't as big that in those days. No, but, not in but, dollar terms, but, but compared to today, if it was done yes, today. Yes, yeah. And so when those orders come through, give us a bit of colour about how they unfold and how you go about buying it, because that moves markets. Yes. Well, look, on one of the occasions where he was buying BHP, he just rang in the morning and the market, I think, was about 8.05 to 8.10. And he said, I want you to go out and bid 8.50 on the floor. Just go out and bid 8.50. And I said, for how many? He said, I'm just go and buy 5% of the company. So <laughs> there's no way when you bid that, that an operator can sign the tickets fast enough. So they, as they were selling them to you, we just had to put a couple of garbage bins on the on beside the operator on the trading floor and everybody just kept throwing the tickets in and then the girl would come and we'd keep adding up to see whether we were. You never get to 5% in one day anyway. So no, we weren't worried that we we're going to get buy, hyper buy it, et cetera. It wasn't a problem. And that for you, well, exciting times when someone does that. Yes. And would you ever question someone who would give you that order? Say, are you sure you want to do this? Or at the end of the day, someone as smart as John, you just follow no, his instructions. Follow instruction, yeah. I mean, he knew what he was doing and um, 
had interest rates not arrived as they did and go to 17 or 18 percent, probably Adelaide Steamship today would be one of the largest companies in Australia. If you work out the value of that BHP with 7 percent of BHP and 15 percent of National Bank and, and ANZ and um, and Westpac, you're probably talking about between those, you'd be probably talking something in the order of about $60 billion in assets alone just there. Adelaide Steamship itself owned businesses outright as well. Yes, it yes. owned, as if I remember correctly, David Jones, Woolworths, Tooth & Co, which was a big brewery. Yes. You had a lot of incredible assets. In yes. Peter's Full Slee, a big food company. But I suppose at the end of the day, debt undid him. Debt. The, the leverage is always susceptible if interest rates move. Yeah, if, yes. Without, if the interest rates hadn't have gone, it he'd been a, would have been fine today, but no, nobody foresaw the interest rate going to that level. At the time also, did you deal with any other, the entrepreneurs? Uh, Robert Holmes, the court, was a big player at yes, that stage. Did you have much he, to do with him? He was a difficult guy to deal with from time to time because he didn't like to play brokerage. And so <laughs> brokers don't like, going, don't, don't like going to guys who don't like to play brokerage. But but yes, we did quite a bit with him. Um, because he, he raided a lot of companies as yes. well, but like Spalvins took those big positions. He, yes. he was more of a corporate raider. Yes. But took big positions. Yes, yes. Uh, in things like Fairfax, we did a, a lot for him in Fairfax and in BHP. He was a, an avid investor in the banks as well. He did the same sort of thing that John Spalvins did. So we dealt for him, but not not like John Spalvins. And one we all know of who's no longer with us, Kerry Packer. Yes. You, you dealt a lot with Kerry. Yes. Um, a different character. Everyone's got a story about Kerry. But how, how would you sum him up as a client. He's a wonderful client. He's a wonderful man. He would act like a bully to you, which which was just a, a bit of huff and puff, etc. He was an incredibly generous guy, incredibly generous. And he did it privately, where a lot of people don't realise what he did. He would, uh, when you go to see him, and he didn't want a phone call. I say he he'd get Pat Wheatley, his secretary, to call you and say, "Look, Mister Packer needs to see you now." And I'd say, "Well, Pat, it's ten o'clock in the morning. Come on, the market's just open. I can't come." And well, he wants you now. All right, so you get up there, you get into the office after uh, half, waiting for half an hour when you got there anyway. And he said, "What are you here for?" And I said, "Well, you, I don't know. You call me." Oh. Well, look, I'll tell you what, I'm going out to look at some caravans for my temporary accommodation for my um, polo farm that I'm building up at Elliston. He said, come with me out to look at the caravans. I said, Kerry, I don't have time to look at caravans. Um, but he said, no, 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 come along, come along. So well, off you went. But he was a, an, he's a wonderful client. And, and uh, when you dealt, they were always big hits. So, so he was a profitable client. It was oh, just, you so. just have a different approach to those other guys who are in the market every day. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, you have told me this story before, but you went out, I think it was at the showground, you went and saw those caravans. Yes. And Kerry was doing his own due diligence about what he would buy. Yes. And as you said, he was pretty generous. He, he ran into a, an well, old lady, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, I, I watched him. Um, these weren't really caravans. They are trailer park homes, if you know what I mean. They were temporary accommodation for his polo players and the people that were building Elliston for him. What happened is, when you inside one, this dear old little lady, probably in her late 80s, and said to him, what are you doing here, love? To which she replied, I'm just looking. He said, why are you looking at here? And she said, oh, well, I live in a caravan. He said, where, where do you live? And she, he said, Bonnie Rig. I don't think he even knew where Bonnie Rig was, on a caravan park. And, and he, he said, well, what do you think of this? And she said, oh, this is lovely. My whole caravan could fit inside the kitchen of this place. <laughs> so after she, after he left, walked down outside, they had one of those folding card tables, that, you know, to, to hand out the leaflets, etc. And there's a man sitting there and taking orders if, he, if somebody would, wanted to buy one. Kerry turned to his assistant and said, I want that lady in there, buy one of those and have it delivered to her, but don't give her my name. <laughs> I wonder what she thought. She must have been suspicious. She didn't know it. Well, she honestly didn't know him at the time. She would have found out afterwards. But he, and did no, he buy no. one for himself, do you know? Oh, he would. 
20 of those for up on the farm. <laughs> so he just bought 21 instead. So, so that, she was the best salesman for that for that group that day? <laughs> that day, yes. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. And what about, I think you've told me this before, but there was Kerry, obviously, and Kerry was larger than life, but his dad preceded him. Yes. Sir Frank. Now, I understand you did meet Sir Frank once. Only once. I went up to see him. Because he died in 1974. Yes, yes. I went. um, This was 74. I can't remember exactly when, but I went once with an analyst, et cetera, a senior analyst at the time. We went up to to talk about TV Corporation, which became Channel 9, which TV Corporation was Channel 9 in those days. It went through a number of different names to publishers and broadcasting, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, we went up to see him. The other fellow was asking a whole pile of questions, et cetera, and I was taking down notes. Then he turned to me, Sir Frank turned to me and said, what are you doing? Haven't you got a question? I said, well, yes, I have. And I said- Did that shock you? You on your back foot at this stage? Yeah, well, on the back foot. That's well, he was an imposing well, character. Was the other guy's job to do the interviewing. I was just along for the ride. So, But he was very imposing. He said, what's your question? And I said, well, look, I've noticed one thing that when I watch TV on Channel 7, Channel 9 and Channel 10, Channel 7 and Channel um, 10 run their ads for 15 minutes per hour. In those days, you could have 15 minutes. I think it was reduced finally to 13 minutes. And I said, but I noticed when you, I looked at yours, your ads only ever run for nine minutes. And he said, so what are you saying? And I said, well, I'm saying if you increased your advertising time on there, you would actually probably double your profit. He said, you're absolutely right. He said, but as long as I'm alive and I watch my own TV, nine minutes is as much as I want to watch of ads. <laughs> <laughs> For a proprietor, he didn't like ads. <laughs> well, he, he, he didn't mind the ads, but he just didn't like watching them. <laughs> he liked the income, but I don't think he the, – the moment he died, it went to – 12 or 13 minutes of ads. There was upside Ke- in Kerry, the business Kerry model. Kerry knew where the upside was. But Kerry liked watching television as well. That's yes, famous. Yes, but, but he put up with the ads. Put up with the ads, yes. Oh, that's terrific. And, and how did he strike us, Sir Frank? You're going to deal with a lot of bigger-than-life, very determined characters when, when, you, when you're at that end of the market. You're a young guy. Yes. Did you did you feel overwhelmed or did uh, you go, yeah, I fit in well, here, I can with, talk to these you people? You up there with a bit of fear and trepidation, et cetera. I mean, he was not very forceful. Kerry was as, as forceful, but by that time, I was older when I was dealing with Kerry in the 80s, et cetera, much more in the 80s with Kerry. And Kerry, while he still had the same character as, as his father, he was, um, you were old enough to take it so you could stand your ground. And moving on to one of your great mates that, till today, someone who is still with us and still doing very well, Solomon Liu. Yes. Who you've had a long relationship with. Was it in the 80s that you met Solomon? Because he was at Myra Emporium and, and he worked his way into Coles and it was a yeah, he w- very he was, smart way to yeah, get to where he got to. Yeah, he wasn't actually in Myra, at Myra Emporium, but he owned Myra Emporium. He bought a, a holding mainly at the request, I think, of the Meyer family to protect it because Myers was under a threat of a, of a takeover. So he bought 10% to assist them. And from there on, it, it turned into Coles Meyer and he became- he merged it into Coles? Yes. And he and became Coles Meyer and he became chairman of it until about, um, oh, I've forgotten the year Mid-90s? now. Mid-90s? Yeah, uh, yeah, the late, late 90s. Then um, he moved on from it, sold it, and then he had the large holding, which got taken out just before um, the GFC by West Farmers. So he made a lot of money out of it. It was a, a brilliant investment. And West Farmers laboured with that investment because they paid too much at the wrong time in the cycle for a good decade, you would think, yes, before yes. they've spun it out again. Yes. Solly's obviously he's still going today. He's got the position. He's got Premier. Yes. And he's he's got a position in Meyer still because it's, yes. it's a separate listed entity again, and that's ongoing, and he's doing quite well out of that at the moment. It's, it's been pretty good this year. What what are some of the things you've learned from Solly? He's obviously a smart guy. You, you, you've known him for a long time. 
Well, he's absolutely dedicated to the business. He lives it and eats it. It's a sport to him almost. It's his passion. And um, he's probably the hardest working, what I would call chairman of a company that I've ever seen. If you go around town with him or you go away or if you're, if you're seeing him overseas and uh, you go and have dinner with him, he will go to all of the, no matter where it is, you'll go through all the shopping centres and you'll be taking samples of everything which he takes back with him to Australia and then has it made up. He's got a wonderful eye for determining what's the latest fashion and what, and what people want. And as you know, the way the cycle works in, in retail, particularly in fashion retail, America, while, while we're an hour, while we're 14 hours ahead of them in time, um, we are six months behind them in, in fashion. That is to say, when it's summer in America, it's winter here, of course, you've got to know what, what's the fashion for summer. So what you do is America or other parts of the England or other parts of Europe, they're setting the pace for what the fashion is. It's what he was very good at identifying what was selling and then copying it. And, and he does that virtually every time he goes away. That's his every version time. of a holiday. Isn't his it? version of a holiday, yeah. I don't think he can sit still for more than five minutes. And I, I, think, I think you were telling me that he actually puts it in a by suitcases and puts it in and du- takes my, it home with you him. You buy duffel bags and bring it all home with him on, on the plane. And you get dragged along. Well, I, I go along to watch because it, it's fascinating. You, you learn a lot from these fellas and how they run their businesses. The thing that I like investing with him or in holding in Premier is I'm a great believer of putting your money where somebody else's money is. There are a lot Skin of, in the game. Yes, he's got, he owns 40% of Premier. There are a lot of public companies around where the chairman and the man, and the chairman and all of the directors probably hold the mandatory one or 2,000 shares. So I know when he goes to work every morning, if it's going to hurt me, if he does something wrong that's going to hurt me as an investor in his company, it's going to hurt him a lot more. So I like to skin in the game. And he's also got that big holding via Premier in Breville, which has been an outstanding success as a global company out of Australia. Yes, he's got um, something like 32% of Breville. It's part of it's owned by um, Premium, part of it he owns privately. Yeah, it's been, it's been an incredible success. So if we move back to 87, which was etched in everyone, the ghosts of 87, when and a good friend of yours and, and someone I work with, Jeff Wilson, I used to say, when are you going to get rid of these ghosts, Jeff? Because he, <laughs> he always used to say, oh, it's like 87. I don't like it. I don't. It's making me nervous whenever the market would wobble a bit. 87, at that point leading into 87, that would have been Potts West Trumbull would have been flying at that stage. Yes. And, and that would have been a very profitable, interesting period for the stockbroking community. Very. How did you get through 87? Because that just stopped business in its tracks. And and to add to that, was that the hardest downturn you've ever seen? Yes. I think when you look at it today, and this is what the you know, the new generation, I mean, a 30-year-old today was not even uh, born at that stage or just about to be born anyway. So they they didn't see it. You had to have lived through it to understand that, what the effect of it was. And so when you look at a chart today and you look at the 87 crash on a chart going out to 2022, it looks like a blip, but it was five years before it got back above that level that it fell to. America turned around and I think recovered with inside 12 to 18 months back to the index high. This one took five years. That was primarily because a lot of entrepreneurs and the banks were leveraged into them. So our financial system got hit hard. Very hard. From after 87 into the early 90s. Yes. The thing that sort of saved the broking, when I say saved, the thing that made broking a lot better as time went on was when Keating introduced the, the rule that your 2.5% superannuation had to keep going up and up and up, and he put a, a level of 15% on it. So it, it was a bit of a godsend to the broking industry because the investment world became much greater with that, with that volume of funds that was flowing in. And that early 90s period when we had the recession we had to have that, that Keating yes. so famously remarked on and interest rates were back 
kind of the 70s levels. Was that was that as tough as the 70s for a broker? Yes. It was a pretty severe downturn. It's the, as you said, the recession we have to have. It was a pretty severe downturn and there were a lot of um, property companies collapsing um, because of the interest rate cycle killing them. Even Westpac stopped redemptions on its um, property trusts, which really affected the poor old pensioner who might have had money invested there just for the yield, only to find that he couldn't get his money out. That was the period also where, going back to Kerry Packer, he raided the Westpac yes. register and, and then eventually sold quite quickly. Well, not eventually, but sold quite quickly and made a turn. Yes. One, were you involved in that? And two, did you see that as a turning point, that the, maybe the market was finding its feet? Because the banks were doing capital raisings at the time as yes, well to, yeah. to that, rebuild their balance sheets. Yeah, that, that's how he actually got the large percentage in, in Westpac. Westpac had had a rights issue at uh, $3 and it um, was underwritten by uh, a broker who then had to sub underwritten by a number of the institutions and fund managers and et cetera, et cetera, around, the, around Australia. Well, because when it dropped below um, the $3, they all knew they were going to get left with a whole pile of stock because it was going to be a shortfall and a massive shortfall. And so they quickly either sold what they had if they had a holding in Westpac. They couldn't least, afford to keep it. They couldn't afford to keep it. And they knew they were going to have to take it up. In the end, the shortfall was became available for sale and that's where he bought the bulk of his holding. It was quite smart at the time. Yeah, very smart, very smart. When you say when he went hard, he knew when he was yes. going to move. Yes. And he was very decisive. So we get through the 87 crash and into the 90s. Potts West Trumbull, what happened to it in the end? Well, in the end, I had a very serious car accident, which kept me incapacitated. I put a car into a tree, <laughs> which was not, not, not a lot of fun. So I was fairly well incapacitated for a while. So in the end, we had an approach by a firm, no longer around today, but it is still around in America, called Prudential Base. Prudential Base had been trying to, for a, a period of a couple of years, buy us, buy me or buy the firm. So um, when I uh, had the car accident um, and I was lying in the hospital bed, et cetera, one of them turned up at the door and knocked at the door and said, Can Why I come you're in, in hospital? Yes. <laughs> Talk about being opportunistic and said, Look, uh, is, there, is there any chance now that you might look at selling? So in the end, we sold, I sold the firm. And when my partners agreed that they wanted to as well, sold the firm to um, Prudential Base. And what year was that? That would have been 1992. 92. And you took a while to recover or did you go straight back into- No, no. I took a while to recover. And then what was the next step after that? You, next step you after- You recovered. I recovered. And then um, Peter Gray and myself decided he was then at Burroughs and Co. And Peter Gray and myself rang me up and said, look, I'm going to start my own firm. And he said, why don't you come and we'll, we'll do it together? Because you had to have it, always had to have two members in those days. Right. You needed to have two members. You couldn't be a sole trader. They wanted you to be, at least have one member to watch what the other member was doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I went with him and we formed uh, what became Southern Cross. Oh, that was the genesis of Southern, Southern Cross. Cross. Yes. And you, you're still working with Peter today. Still working with him today, yes. Yeah, yes. so that, that's been a good partnership. Great partnership. And yeah. he's a lovely guy. Very good guy. Yeah. yeah. So that, that took a while. That obviously took the wind out of you for a while. That, that was a- For a few years, yes. Yeah. But it's in your blood, I think. So I don't play golf. I don't. I don't. My sport is, I like the market because it is actually a competition almost every day. It is. That's exactly right. We all know that. Invariably, you lose. So you learn how to lose quite well yes. <laughs> over time, even though no one likes it. But that period where you were in hospital, did you ever think about just giving it away? No, no, no. Totally determined to do something. I mean, I was too young in my mind to retire then. And I, I had to put it, putting it bluntly, my wife said, but better for worse, but not for lunch. She didn't want me staying at home. <laughs> Well, as I said in the intro, you, you, you enjoy your lunches. So um, she, she was obviously aware of that. That was a good partnership. So Peter was was a very positive element to you getting back 
yes. into it. And you built Southern Cross, so that, that became an outstanding success. It was a great success. and uh, You had a few other interesting characters. Richard Granger. Richard joined. Granger, a fellow called David O'Halloran. David, who was a, an analyst. Back, yeah. He came, a terrific small yeah, cap investor, yeah, David. Yeah. We hired people out of Citibank, um, a fellow called uh, Charlie Aitken and his brother Angus, etc. Adam Stratton. We actually poached a few of them from there. A lot of, a lot of people got sick of working for the big banks because it's, it's just too demoralizing in some cases because they wake up one morning and they those banks will often say, we're going to cut the workforce by 10% and they throw a whole, whole pile of people out the door. Without warning. Without warning, yes. They came to work with us. We built it to what it was, and then Bell Potter came along and made it. They didn't have a really have a proper institutional desk. They were high, a lot of private clients, but no institutional desk. So they bought us for the institutional business. Just going back on, on Southern Cross, had your role changed a bit, or were you still, still talking talk- to the same accounts? Still talking to the because same Because over time, it, it's quite interesting. I've watched brokers where they grow older with their clients, and their clients either retire, the institutional ones, or they're not as active. How do you keep fresh, and how do you keep renewing your clients? In terms of the the um, the older ones that you knew that, that have gone that stayed along that went along and in, and still were performing like say a Solomon Lou when that's a contact that's gone back for uh, thirty or forty years those ones you talk to when you talk about the AMP or the or Bankers Trust or now Pendulous it's called all those institutional ones you need the younger fellows to come along that was why we had a Charlie Aitken or an Angus Aitken and Adam Strattons etc you got to pass it on to them because people of the same age with the clients exactly. or similar age works better works better yes always. So you, you were able to, well, that was a nice mix where you were able to keep the, your older clients that were still very active. Yes. And th- then they came in and, and they developed relationships with institutions who, since the Keating era, I suppose it's become an institutional market. Very much so. Yes. It's the biggest part of the market. And the other thing that probably happened that time was the advent of the internet and online broking. Yes. Which put, put a spanner into the works for a lot of retail brokers in particular because it had that run and we, we had quite a few companies here, the likes of E-Trade and the various banks got into it and we know Comsec still exists today. But did you ever consider that a threat to – because the break industry was turned upside down. It was and it is, is a threat even to today. Um, the way brokerage rates have gone now, um, they're ever forever under pressure to go lower and lower. And because of what's now called direct market access, it's available to institutions. In many cases, they don't need the broker. They just put the order on themselves in a direct market access and they pay a, pay a few bips, as they say, when um, when the order's executed. And in a lot of cases, when you do get an order, the skill of operating the order is no longer, a lot of it's not crossed now. By crossed, I mean where you, you match a buyer and seller. Mm. A lot of that's not done now. A lot of the orders you get is what they call a VWAP order, very weighted average price. And so you get this order to say, buy me. Uh, you tell the machine to do it over a day? The operator. You've still got an operator, but he's a sheet, uh, sitting in front of a, a computer and he puts it in as a VWAP or it might be one of those orders that buy, only buy 20% of the turnover on any one day. There are all variations on the algorithm that you can use. And so that changes what you do considerably. Yes. In many cases, it sort of takes some of the skill out. Um, if you were doing, for example, a corporate raid, like, for example, when, when Solly Lou wanted to buy 15% of, of, of Myers in one go, well, you don't put that in the machine. For that one, you, you've got to go around and find somebody that's a willing seller. You'll always be paying a, a premium to buy it, a premium above the market, but you match the buyer and seller and then you put it all through in one go. 
And was that something something I learned when uh, once again when I went and worked with Jeff Wilson, who was a previously a broker? Yes, he he seemed to know who owned what stock. Yes, was that something you spent a lot of time on? What registers look like? Yes, today you can get it much more quickly because there's a reg- uh, there's an update every day on the computer telling you where people have gone substantial. That is, if you're up above five or go below five, you, you can see who's selling and who's buying. But before that. We, what we used to do is we hired a couple of old bank managers who reached retirement age but didn't want to didn't play golf and didn't want to do but wanted to go to work and their job was to go to the reg- company registers and every three months we go back to the same register and they keep book after book after book on different companies so what it enabled us to do is you'd know who was buying BHP or who was buying um, AMP shares it meant that if you've got an order to sell, you knew where to go, or if you had a good an order to buy, you'd know who was selling, you'd know where to go. The biggest risk when you take orders and you go and bid somebody, that he, he might also be a buyer. So when he sees you trying to buy 10 million shares and he's got an order on for another broker, he'll ring the other broker and tell him, up my limit by two cents, there's another big buyer around. So what you want to be able to do is to bid potential sellers. You don't want to be bidding a competing buyer. So market intelligence is it's, very important. Yeah, and that's still important today. So when Solly says, I want to buy 15%, of Meyer, you kind of know where you're going to go yes. straight away. Yes. He did the same thing in Just Jeans when he bought Just Jeans. You know the institutions that's pretty who's got the stock, and then you go along and see you've got to negotiate a price out of them. I get the feeling that's been a bit of a lost art on the modern broking world. Certainly. Because the machines do the bulk of the work. Yes. And the people sitting on the desk rely heavily on their analysts where they promote a story. They don't actually have that innate kind of market feel about someone's buying something or selling, I know where to go, who's got the stock. Those days seem to have drifted a bit. Well, because you're getting an order that might be on a VWAP, as they say, there's no need to go. You're not bidding anybody in a, in a lot of cases. I mean, there are still times when you do ring in institutions and say, look, I've got 10, 10 million of these to sell or 10 million of these to buy, but you've got to be pretty careful with it. So a lot of the a lot of your orders you get from institutions, from corporates, you will get an, a, the variation where you go and try and find a block. But from the institutions, it's they want what the VWAP was on the day. It's very interesting. And now if you do block sales, which are normally a special type of shareholder, yes, maybe a private equity firm that's remained there post a listing or a big individual, it's very formulated. Yes. They go out afterwards and say, we're doing a block sale at this price, bids in by six o'clock. Yes. There's not much feel to it. There's not much. No, not, it's not very much. mechanical. If you're doing it as a raid, though, it's an entirely different because when you're raiding something- It's um, much you, more covert operation. Yeah. And in addition, it's also difficult because the seller that you're buying it from knows that you won't know necessarily who you're buying, but he knows that it could be potentially cause a, the beginning of a takeover, so as to say. One of the things you've got, that they've got to be careful of is they'll often sell you a part of their holding- because they, they figure it'll get, get the game started. and to get the game going, yes. Well, that's always good because you think you're going to get a higher price for the rest right. of your yes. whole. Yes, <laughs> And so sold to Bells. Yes. Southern Cross. But it wasn't long before you set up Blue Ocean. Well, we had an earn out with Bells. It was a three-year earn out. So at the end of the three years, they weren't so keen on anybody that was over the age of 50. <laughs> so anybody- <laughs> and, and most of you qualified for that. <laughs> the yes. So they, they decided that they wanted to bring it all in-house into Bell Potter rather than leave it as two separate companies. So at that stage, we just all retired. You picked most of the people who, who you went in with with Southern Cross. They came out yeah. at Bell Potter as- Blue Ocean Equities. Most of them were just over 50. <laughs> and where, where do you get these names from? They're very Australian-based names. Blue Ocean, you mean? Blue Ocean, Southern Cross. Yeah, well, the Southern Cross is quite obvious because it is, you know, the Southern Cross in the, in the sky, etc. The Blue Ocean came from um, a book that was written, I've forgotten the fellow, written by a Harvard professor, and he said, he talked about Blue Oceans and Red Oceans. It's all about how you, how you run a company. Right. What, what, how to do it. 
if it's a, a well-run company, by that it means well-run, but the, and the people all get on and it's properly managed, et cetera, et cetera. They're blue ocean companies. And uh, Apple was an example that they used in this in this study. It was a blue ocean company. Uh, it was a company where the staff were all engaged, everybody worked happily, et cetera, et cetera. It was a team. Red oceans are ones where you've got everybody fighting internally and it usually ends up as a disaster as an investment. Which is interesting because you hear endless stories about, especially in those heady times in the 80s, where it was dog eat dog in the broken world. If you went on a holiday, your chair would be pushed down to the end of the desk, <laughs> yes. and by the time you got back, you'd lost half your clients. And So that, that's hard to formulate to get everyone rowing in the same direction at a broken house. As long as you don't get too big, yes. If you get too big, it's, you've got the your firm's divided over different floors. We had them all on one floor. I would have regarded everybody as, as like your family. And are you happy being in charge? You've been at the top since those early days with Potts West Trumbull and even at Rivkin. You're in charge of a lot of people. Is that? Do you enjoy working with people? Yes, very much. And so. as a manager, and what what are some of the tricks of managing people, especially in a in a volatile world like stockbroking? Well, I've always had policy. You try and hire clever people. You want them cleverer than yourself. So if you've got clever people around you, it's a good start because they they should be able to do what they can do best. And so I tried to always make sure you had that. But in addition, you've, it's a bit of camaraderie. If you can, if it, if it gets too big, it becomes comes out unwieldy. Uh, and you look at the American ones; they are doggy dog. You, you're right. You can come back one more. And your seat's gone, or you move down. You move further down the room. But in uh, a firm like Southern Cross in those days, it was the dealing team would have been uh, ten people, fifteen people, and they would meet with each other on weekends. It was it was like a family. And do you like to walk the floor? Yes. He- hear the other conversations Always. that are going on. It's absolutely imperative, I think, that you do walk the floor. You've got to have a relationship. And the, the person who I've, who's best at that amongst the investors that um, that I deal with was Solly Lou. I've seen Solly Lou, for example, go into a shop. The girl behind the desk, the checkout chick, so to speak, wouldn't know it was Mr. Lou. And he'd ask her, "How are you?" How you do you enjoy working here? What's it like? What's your boss like, etc. This is a chairman of a, a major company walking the floor uh, of his own shops without notifying anybody that he's coming. He just walk in. The manager might have recognised him, but the staff didn't. But he get the feel of how they were. Sounds like Kerry Packer talking to that elderly woman. Yes, she had no idea. <laughs> no idea, but, but that served her well. So before we leave this, and I want to talk to about your own investing a bit more, but just to finish up on broking, what, what would you say is the biggest change from, obviously we've gone from a, an open outcry on the floor to machine driven uh, at the desk. Well, what, what's the biggest change in the 50 odd years that you've been broking that you've noticed? Because the broker has survived. The, the yes. middleman has survived between buyer and seller. Yes. But it's changed. Yeah, but it's changed. So in broking now, you can't, can't really be successful in broking if you're just doing and buying and selling of shares. Which the, you could previously. Which you could previously. Nowadays, you've got to have a corporate department. And basically, your corporate department is your big income producer. For example, a lot of these underwritings, under, these placements, these IPOs that you see of late, they usually get about a 5% average fee. So you're raising $100 million, you get $5 million fee. If you buy $100 million worth of shares, you'll get about 200 grand in brokerage, mm. 0.2, not 5%. And what, what were, if you go back, so the 70s, what fee rate when you were just buying and selling shares could you charge? Before um, about 1984, they were fixed rates. <laughs> <laughs> they were regulated. The stock exchange regulated them. Very <laughs> we, nice. We had fixed rates. So you paid so much for the first $5,000, so much for the next $15,000, so much for the next $20,000, and, and so on. And you would have averaged on an institutional order, you would probably be averaging close to 1.8 to 2%. Which is probably 10 times? What 10 it is? times, yeah. 
it was a different game then. Different game, yes. And but there was also just harking back on those days. It was it wasn't T plus two. It wasn't no. T plus three or no. T, uh, my understanding it was could be T plus anything. T plus anything. The difference for a broker today is in those days you had to have a decent sized balance sheet. When the clients bought, if you didn't pay on day one, but the somebody delivered it to you, you were stuck with having to have a bank overdraft. And the bank overdraft. So you held the stock on their behalf until well, until they paid you. <laughs> no, and there was no, no regulations around that. No, 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 well, you could put pressure on them, of course, to pay you. And the institutions always paid you. But if you bought for a private client, that's one of the reasons why we sort of moved out of that. You went to, dealt for the high net worth, they pay you straight away. I would say that the average overdraft that we I was running at Potts West Trumbull would have been $80 million on a, on a day. And did that worry you? Yes. <laughs> you got your house. What, happened, what happened at the end of the day? Well, well that's why you got, became very cautious about when you take orders. If you take an order from Johnson Valvers, no problem. But would you take an order from certain parties that uh, were of a little bit loose in their character? The answer is no. You take a sell order, but not a buy order. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It was now your own client by commercial reality yes, as yes. opposed to being forced upon you. Absolutely. And you worked it out yourself. Yeah, well, you knew whether they were good for it. I mean, if you've been dealing with it for, year, for you know, 20 or 30 years, you know these guys are good for it. If you've got small little clients that are coming in in some of these broking firms, they used to leave the brokers with bad debts. It's very hard to get a bad debt now because if the fellow, when you buy, it's usually it's linked to a bank account and you draw the money down straight away to pay for it. But he's got two days to pay. If he hasn't paid after two days, you sell him out. So the risk these days is not with the actual broking and the buying and selling. No. The risk is if you're underwriting something. Yes. And I know you sub it out to the institutions, but there's that overhang, which you talked about with Westpac. Those kind of things can still buy a broker. If there's a shortfall, yeah, you've well, got it, stock it, that it, you've got to get rid of. If you underwrite it yourself and take the risk, well, yes, it, it could bring a broker down, I guess, if it's, if it's big enough. Most brokers lay the risk off. They'll go around the institutions and offer them a sub-underwriting. Otherwise, they won't do the deal. They won't do the deal, yeah. Yeah. I, I do remember when I was quite young, Macintosh ran into that problem that they'd underwritten, uh, I can't remember the name of the company now, I think it might have been the Grand Hotel. The Grand Hotel, yeah. And, and they Grand got Hyatt. caught with Grand Hyatt. They got caught with stock. Yes. And, and institutions like Macintosh struggled to recover and eventually Merrill Lynch took them over. Took them over, yes. And that was the start of it. So these days you think it's a lot more professional than that. The risk, most brokers won't take that kind of risk and put no. everything under pressure. And I no. suppose the stock exchange and ASIC are watching them like a hawk because they don't want that systematic risk. No, but the difference uh, to a certain extent between the 70s and 80s and the uh, the now the trading floor or sorry, the, the market of today is that we don't know who the buyer, we don't know if we're buying in the market, who the seller is, an anonymous market. Previously on the trading floor or when it originally was on a screen, you could see who the seller was. So if you didn't want to deal with a certain certain broker because it might, you were worried about his financial capacity, what you did is you dealt with the other fellows. When you yell out, I'll yeah. buy this, and somebody would say yes. and You can't so you, do that now. No, no, now it's all anonymous. So the risk is somewhat removed for the public insofar as the stock exchange has got a guarantee. Then there's a reserve bank standing behind it, and then there's an insurance company that stands behind it. So if a broker went down and we dealt with him, in the old days, what would happen is the liquidator would say, well, all those trades are yours. Nowadays, it, it's automatically because it's a two-day settlement. We, we don't get stuck with them because we don't know who we're dealing with. So they have to protect you for that. So the regulation makes it harder in some ways, but it works very well. Very well, yes. Yeah. So it's become a lot more sophisticated over time. Yes. Yeah. 
we've touched on it a few times through the conversation, but I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes talking about your own investing, which I know you've loved doing. Every time I've ever seen you, you talk about this stock or that stock, and you should have a look at this. And and, and your old mate David O'Halloran, yes, he, he he's a great, especially small cap investor. And you've mentioned that you like to invest alongside people with their own money, skin in the game. And you also talked about if you've got a speculative stock, which there's still quite a few of that you like to sell. Do you consider yourself a good seller? Look, I'd like to say yes, but the answer is no. <laughs> I might get the buying right, but I, I tend to hold on too long sometimes. I'm not a good seller. I should stop loss them, but I don't. I, I and why is that? Uh, I think it's- Too optimistic? It, yes, probably being a bit too optimistic. Because but, as a broker, it's, it pays to be off optimistic over this, yes. a long period. Yes. But it doesn't always work on a day-to-day basis. No. But um, there are times too, though, where I have ridden things and ridden it all, all the way up. So uh, you, you take you make some bad ones, but you also make some good ones. And, and is there any investment over the time where you've just invested yourself that you, you that sticks in your head that you think I've done really well here? Well, the, look, the major one that um, I did was during the GFC. The best buy that I made in the, during the GFC was I backed Magellan, and the shares were before the GFC about two dollars. In the GFC, they fell to thirty-seven cents. So I bought. And bought and bought, and I bought for for clients too. Between and probably averaging in at seventy or eighty cents, a lot of stock. Everybody was bailing out of any everything. Now, in those days, Magellan probably only had three or four hundred million under management. Ten years later, they had a hundred billion under management, and the shares had gone from seventy cents to seventy dollars. Now, did I sell some on the way up? Yes, you take some off the table, but I probably didn't start selling until I got to $20, and then I think I sold at $30 and $40 and $50 and $60. You always keep some at the end, and those, sadly today, they're back about 10 to $10 yeah, a share. We've seen the other side of the mountain yes. on the chart, haven't we? But that, that's great investment. But it also tells me that you were able to do that at the bottom of the GFC because most people and most companies were putting out their own bushfires. They had to get money back to the bank, although the leverage is being round right back but you had the um, capacity and the willingness at the bottom of the market, as they used to say, blood was on the street. Yes. So that's quite interesting that you had that, that and you consider that your best investment when thing everyone else is selling. That's the, the perfect time to buy, as I say. I think Berkshire Hathaway proves that. But one of the things you've got to understand is I would never gear. I'd never gear a thing. I, I never borrowed to do it. I'd only use, I only put up cash to buy it on the, if, on the grounds that if I lose, I can afford to lose that. I didn't want the gearing. And I think when the GFC hit, a lot of the fall was caused not just by the, the GFC, so it was the, with the gearing in the GFC. People were lev- so leveraged, um, three and four and five to one, that it multiplies itself and they just get sold out. It's a recurring theme. That's the one thing I've got to say I've learned over time that gearing can enhance your returns. But no matter what asset class it is, if you're overgeared, Yes. It, it it bites you in the end, and yeah. we've seen that- Many times. With um, cryptocurrency again in yes. the last few yeah. weeks, it's happened yeah. again. Leverage. You a volatile asset, you don't want to gear. Leverage to me is um, an, anathema, an, an anathema. I would not, if I were advising private clients, I'd, I wouldn't want to uh, be advising to leverage their positions. I think it's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And, and are you prepared to leverage against property? Uh, well, if you're buying a piece of property, yes. Yes. It's slightly different. Yeah, yeah, slightly different. But then again, you've got to be careful. Interest rates have moved so dramatically from 0.1 to uh, – uh, the mortgage rate's gone from 1.9 to uh, about 6.5 now. So you can see what the difference that makes. Yeah. It's a huge increase. It, it definitely is. So one thing I'd, I'd love to finish up on is I know you're a regular traveller. Yes. You, you like to get around. I know just this year you've, you've had – 
a trip or two after a couple of years of COVID where you couldn't go anywhere. How do you see Australia in that sense? You've got a good feel for European markets, had a long association with the UK. You've been to America a lot. Asia's emerged over the last 20 years. The future for Australia? I'm not so pessimistic about Australia. I, I do see America having its problems in the early part of the next year. I think the first half of the year is going to be quite tough because he's quite adamant that he's going to use um, for interest rates to control inflation. And uh, any further increases in interest rates will cause some more pain here as well as over there. I was encouraged by the fact that the Reserve Bank here only did a quarter and a quarter. The last two have been quarters, not halves, half percent, which shows a treading carefully now. You just don't want to put the brakes on too hard or you'll you'll have too much of an accident. But in Australia, I mean, the, the lucky thing about Australia is we've got massive or iron ore exports, massive. You know, 30 or 40% of the iron ore going into China is coming out of Australia. We've got massive coal deposits and you can see the coal prices where they are today at three and four hundred dollars a ton they've been to. We've got massive lithium products now where the lithium which, price is which rising. Could be the new iron ore. The new iron ore. We've got Massive gas reserves, if, as long as the government allows us to get it out of the ground, we can keep the electricity price down, perhaps, if they let, if they let it get out of the ground. Whereas, and we've got 26 million people. Now, and we've America, got a good financial system. And a good financial system, very strong financial system. In America, you've got 375 million people. We've got all this income that's produced by, by mining uh, assets, etc. And that's why I would like to think the government doesn't fall into the trap and tried to fall into last time by putting on a super tax on mining companies. It'd be a ridiculous thing to do. Uh, you want to encourage them to continue to mine. Once you start putting super taxes on them, they can, then they've got to pass that on if they can. And if they can't, it slows down the mining service, the mining industry. So I'm going to take that as you're optimistic about Australia. Yes. Which yes. is nice. Yes. The first part of next year is not going to be, it's going to be a, a flat sort of year, I think. I, I'm not- Into next year, but longer term. Longer term, no, no. I'm optimistic about it, yes. That's terrific. So here we are, more than half a decade. I said 55 years. That's as best as we can recall from doing the numbers when you started. Do you think you will retire or- Oh, as I said, my don't, wife- don't, don't announce it now. No. no, that, no that would shock me. No, no. As, as, my, as I said, my wife has always said, she doesn't want me to help around the house and I don't I don't play yeah, golf. So my enjoyment is going there. I like to be there too. The young people in the office give you um, a, a bit of a encouragement too. It's nice to see them all developing. So- um, And Blue Ocean's done very well. Yeah. And it's been look, successful. Yes. And, and it's a good- um, brokerage to, as a client, it's a great place to interact with. Yes. And look, we try to teach the young fellows what, when they, the, these young analysts, etc., when they're going out to look at companies, what to look for. And I learned from, I think it, yes, it was the late Sir Norman Ridge. A lot of people won't, won't know of Sir Norman Ridge. I think he died in the late 70s, early 80s or something. He's a wonderful investor. He ran a company called Amalgamated Holdings and Carlton Investments, two really wonderful companies. And he was a, a very astute investor. And he taught me, he said to me, I would have only been 25, 26 at the time, and he would have been 55, 56 at the time. So to me, he was an old man, but he was very good at what he did. And his attitude to investing was, he said, Brent, I want you to understand one thing. When you go to look at a company first, don't worry about what it does. Don't worry about what the earnings are. The first thing you look at is the board. I want you to look at the board first. He said, if it's a good board can fix, fix a set of bad assets, a bad board can stuff up a set of good assets. So he said, you look at the people who are going to run it, if you convince the people who are running it know what they're doing and you think it's a big enough discount, then you go and buy it. Particularly if it's bad, a set of bad assets that they put a good board in there to try and turn it around, then you can buy it. Now, if you look at examples of that, Solly Lou, for example, you look at him as a, a board member, the most active chairman of any company in Australia. He walks the floor of other people's shops, let alone his own shops. As I said earlier, a lot of 
and boards don't have, the, they've got the director's qualification of 1,000 shares that you have to have or 2,000 shares, whatever the, the, the thing is. They don't have a, a holding in the company. And as such, it doesn't hurt them if it's wrong as much. It might hurt their reputations, but financially it doesn't hurt them. So my view is I like to be where their money is and I like to make sure that the board's sound. And if you get that right, then uh, that's the first step. And that's the thing that the young, younger generation don't sort of understand. They sort of think, well, this mining company, that mining company, this, this they speculate. They like the flavour of the day. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, it sounds a bit like you, you've developed an approach a bit like your, your old grandfather did. Yes. There was a certain way of investing and that's, that's safe and steady. So that's terrific. Look, we could talk for hours. I want to congratulate you on your terrific career. And I want to say thanks for coming in and, and um, sharing it with everyone. It, it's, as I said, it's, it's as colourful and as interesting as anyone I've ever heard. So thank you. My pleasure and thank you for having me. 